Joining me today for Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times is a man who at the age of 10 attended the opening ceremony of the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics with his grandfather. He has since spearheaded the successful LA bid to host the 2028 Summer Olympic and Paralympic Games. Having masterminded that, it was inevitable that he was asked to take the presidency of the organising committee. Hmm, funny how that works. His surname maintains an iconic reverence in Los Angeles and the entertainment world because of the Herculean achievements of his late grandfather, Lou Wasserman, who was the father of modern Hollywood. From running public relations for a Cleveland nightclub, he is now the CEO of his own sports marketing agency, fittingly named after him. A warm welcome to one of the titans of sport and entertainment, Casey Wasserman. Casey, welcome. Thank you. It's, uh, it's very nice to see you and, and be with you, or it's as close as we're going to get to seeing each other anytime soon. Well, I hope not. You know, the vaccine might mean that we can start, uh, you know, we can start being a bit more upfront and personal. But uh, yeah, it's, it's been far too long. Casey, let me dive in, if I may, very quickly, um, because you were there in the stadium in 1984. Now, that really carbon dates me, because, of course, <laughs> <laughs> that was my second, uh, a second Games. Uh, and having come out of the first Games, which for me was Moscow with the, all its, you know, communist command and control, and then to go to the cartoonish extravagance of 84 white grand pianos all played by Liberace lookalikes uh, in the opening ceremony... Uh, for me, it was, you know, you couldn't have, I couldn't have spanned two more different games. Uh, as a 10-year-old, what on earth was going through your mind during those opening ceremony sequences? Well, it's so, uh, it's so interesting because I remember it so vividly. Uh, I remember, you know, the color and, and the sort of iconography around Los Angeles and the anticipation that the city had. Obviously, you know, uh, uh, my grandfather was involved and we had this anticipation of was the city of L.A. going to turn into gridlock and this nightmare. And of course, as you know, being here, it was maybe the greatest two weeks in the history of the city. And it was uh, and that opening ceremonies was truly a magical moment. Um, you know, the, the, the people in the crowd holding up their little placard, which then created the flags of the world and the, and the rocket man and all of that stuff that then began this incredible two weeks of, of moments, whether it was Carl Lewis or Edwin Moses or, you know, uh, Mary Decker and Zola Bud and, and Mary Lou Retton. And, you know, people forget, like, Michael Jordan was on, as, as a college athlete, was on the USA basketball team in 1984. I mean, so just this incredible thing in the city I was in, and it's, it's just, you know, as, as Mary Garcetti and I both have said, and when we started this journey, it really did, in many ways, change the path of our lives. Well, I remember those games very well, but I remember them now, in hindsight, having sort of chaired an organising committee, that actually Los Angeles broke new ground, mainly because it had to. Um, Peter Uberoth, who's sort of doing the job that you'll be doing in, in 2028, created the top partnerships. I remember it was the first games that actually had an Olympic route network that had Olympic lanes. So it actually broke a lot of new ground, didn't it, as a games? It did. And I think in, you know, and the one I always point to for for people, because it's just it seems 84 does not feel that long ago in, in relative terms. You know, I think about Joan Benoit and in your sport, the fact that whether it was swimming or athletics, that there were no distance events for women because they didn't think they could participate in them and, and manage the distance to then this incredible moment of, of Joan Benoit winning the first women's Olympic marathon and, and just 
coming to today where the female athletes are doing such extraordinary things in, in athletics uh, or swimming or some of the other sports that have distances. And it's really, you know, it did break ground. I mean, obviously, this the, the concept of, of reusing so many of the facilities like USC and UCLA, uh, all, all of that really sort of laid the foundation in many ways for what has become a much more modern Olympic Games, not just in commercial terms, but even in participation terms. Look, I, I want to touch upon that slightly later in our conversation, but I want to go back to something I feel quite strongly about, and that is that we're all, I mean, I guess it's quintessentially the human condition to be shaped. We're all shaped by some pretty powerful influences uh, in our lives, uh, the neighbourhood, the geography, um, friendship that, that we create along the way, our educational establishments, and mountainously by family. Now, clearly, your grandfather was a huge influence on you. I've read things that you've said about him, and I think uh, in one interview you gave, you actually described him as the greatest teacher that you could possibly have had. Tell me a little bit more about that, because I was coached by my father, uh, and that's, you know, uh, father-grandfather relationships are are, are pretty important. No question. And for me, it was an interesting situation because... Obviously, why biologically, I had a father uh, uh, in terms of a physical relationship. I had none from the age of really three or four and for the rest of my life. And my grandfather, frankly, you know, by his own choice, having no idea anything about me or what I would be like or who I would be or how I would or how it would affect his life, made a very conscious decision to be that to me, to be that father figure, not just a doting grandfather, which he also was, but to be that father figure. And in that commitment... He didn't, I tell people the most incredible thing he did was he did not waver for one second of one day for the rest of his life. And so, you know, I talked to him, the first person I talked to every morning of my life when when I knew how to use a phone was my grandfather. Uh, He started taking me to breakfast every Saturday and Sunday. We went to breakfast every Saturday and Sunday, just the two of us from the time I was five years old until a month before he passed away when I was about 26 years old. I traveled the world with him. I, you know, I, I was incredibly fortunate, and it was to have that as a as a role model, as a human being, to have that as a as a human influence on me, way more powerful than anything he would have or could have done for me in business, which is what people always assume. Ironically, what most people don't know is he actually had a no nepotism rule in the corporate bylaws of MCA. So there was even if he hadn't sold the business, there was zero chance I was going to work there. Uh, and the greatest thing he did for me, you know, he would come to my tennis matches or come to my little league baseball games. And he was just truly constant at a time, by the way, Seb, as, as you know, like there was no, there were no iPhones, there was no cell phones. Like he would leave his office, drive himself to a, a tennis, a high school tennis match of mine to watch me. And that was a sacrifice. And he was unbelievably consistent for my entire life. And, and I will tell you today without a singular question changed the course of my life uh, in, in ways I probably don't even fully comprehend and appreciate today, even looking back and even as the father of two kids. It's, it was the most remarkable thing he could have ever given to me, and he, he did it with such incredible love and consistency. I, I, it was incredible. Does it make you a better father? No question. Um, no question, because obviously my, uh, my view of what a father was was not a good one. Yeah, sure. And so I had this incredible thing. And what you realized was being present, being consistent, being available, you know, doing what you say and say what you're going to do. 
uh, are really powerful. There's no question, you know, even in the most uh, dysfunctional relationships, I assume all fathers love their kids, but the work to be a good father is what he modeled for me. And, th- and that's what I try and, and hold myself to every day with my two kids. Clearly, the love you received from him was mountainous, but clearly also that given his background and the way you must have osmotically sort of just absorbed that background, was it inevitable that you would probably end up doing what you're doing today? I, I would say yes. Um, look, I, I, he was a, an incredible storyteller. Uh, so he was, when we would go to our breakfast, it wasn't like, oh, do this, don't do that. It was not that. It was he would give me stories because he had this incredible breadth of experience and life uh, lessons and life history. So he would impart those stories on me. And I think he viewed my job in many, many ways, like, frankly, prehistoric days, was to my job was to draw the lessons out of those stories. So I, I grew up with a great exposure to, to the entertainment business. Um, I always loved sports. He always loved sports. Uh, and so I think growing up in Los Angeles, growing up with him, such a presence in my life, probably uh, much more likely to be doing what I'm doing than being a doctor or a lawyer. But uh, I, I love what I do. And I tell people all the time, the greatest gift uh, I had was the freedom to pursue a career that I was passionate about. Um, and I am lucky enough to get to do that every day. It's a... It's a lovely story, and I'm guessing that, well, first of all, there's less content in most novels that I read, frankly, so there's a, there's a wonderful story to be written there, Casey, if I may say so. But what is also interesting is that you both must have trodden that path very carefully because it would have been very easy for you to have almost been subsumed uh, beneath his reputation and not had the confidence in a way. It could have worked the other way. You might not have had the confidence to go out because you might have felt you were always going to be compared. Yeah, no question. It's a, it's a good point. I, and one of the things he always said to me is, look, do what you want to do with your life. You want to be a school teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, like follow your passion in life. Don't do what I do because I do it. Uh, and he was always clear. As I mentioned, he had a no nepotism policy. So, so anything I would have done in the, in the most strict definition of the entertainment industry uh, would have been uh, uh, outside of the confines of his business. And I think he really wanted me to pursue my own path. And, and I always loved the sports, but I, in a weird way, I was one of those weird kids who always loved the business of sports. And so I, I kind of liken it to, you know, if you're Michael Jordan's son, playing basketball is a really difficult thing. So going to have <laughs> tried and been an entertainment executive uh, to be compared to Lou Osterman. And, and the powerful thing for me about the, the career path I chose, and obviously those worlds are closer together than ever in, in both in the world and in my life. But, you know, I always wanted to earn my own reputation. I'm, I'm competitive by nature. And so I didn't want anything I did to sit, to, to sort of have a comma and an and. So he did this comma and or comma, but he's Lou Wasserman's grandson. Like I nothing I'm more proud of in my whole life than being Lou Wasserman's grandson, but that's not what I wanted to be defined by. And yeah. I was, it was very important to me personally to create my own. And if I, by the way, if I had by my doing, got a bad reputation. I just wanted to have a reputation that I had earned. And, and it was very important to me um, to do that. I'm only smiling at this moment at that story because I, I did once take one of my sons aside and who was showing an interest in athletics and saying, look, you know, it's, it's not the easiest path for you to tread. And he looked at me very coldly and he said, what makes you think I'm not going to run quicker than you? Which sort of put me <laughs> back in my box very quickly. But exactly. I, if I move that on slightly, family obviously is very important to you for all sorts of reasons that you've just articulated. It's the age-old question, though. How do you balance family 
and other commitments because it's a delicate one at the best of time, isn't it? And there'll be lots of people listening to this podcast who will be, you know, wanting to create space in their own lives for a glittering career uh, and have ambitions. But what would your advice be to them about the balances that are necessary? Yeah, look, as, as you know, you know, in many ways better than I do as your, your kids are older than mine. It's really complicated. I, I always tell people there is no simple or easy answer. Um, I am a big believer in a couple of things, though. One, uh, when I'm home, uh, obviously we haven't been traveling lately, but you and I both have traveled the world many times over in our in our roles. Uh, but when I'm home... Certainly I'm home, enough. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when, when I'm home... Uh, when I'm in the Los Angeles, I'm always home for dinner, so I don't make any dinner appointments. Uh, I have dinner with my family. I, there's no phone for me at the table. I'm present. And, and so I think you just have to be really, for me, the, the two things I've learned are, one, it's okay to say no to certain business things, and it's okay to say no to certain family things. You just have to be comfortable with both of those confines to 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 know that in the end, none of it really is going to make a world-changing difference. And if it was, you probably wouldn't be saying no. And so being able to say no and be present for your family or being being able to say no to your family and make them understand that this is an important thing for, for work or, or business or the Olympics or whatever I'm doing. And then when I'm with them, I have to really be focused on being present. So, you know, no phones, no distractions. You know, it's it's family time. And, and it's as disciplined as that. It is. It really is. And a couple hours of of dinner and, and hanging out, whether it's watching a show or, you know, just having a fun conversation or playing cards or whatever is really powerful. It's much better than six hours of being half, half, half involved and half attentive because you're distracted by work or your iPhone or whatever. And then the other thing for me is I really have found, and it's obviously no replacement for physical presence and quality time, but you know, I have a daughter who's a, a world-class equestrian, so ironically she travels in, in many ways as much as I do, but the ability to FaceTime her when I get up or vice versa and before you go to bed and stay connected and just whether it's text or FaceTime, you know, it's not out of sight, out of mind. It's, it's you know, it's out of sight, but still completely top of mind. And I think it's important to know that you're thinking about them, whether I send my daughter a text, I sent her one this morning and I, she may not reply till four o'clock this afternoon because she's already at, a, at, at the barn just saying, good morning, I love you, have a good day riding. You know, like, I just think it's really important to stay, con and it's the lesson I learned from my grandfather, that consistency, you know, it's, it's the thing we use in business too. I tell my employees all the time, being good, being consistent for a short period of time is not that hard. Being consistent for a really long period of time is really hard. And the more you can do that, the more successful you will be in anything you do. I think that is a fairly cogent answer for most human-based activities. Uh, you talked about traveling. Uh, you and I have a mutual friend in the uh, chairman of uh, Chelsea Football Club, Bruce Buck, that yep. laughed with me that uh, he'd heard that Warren Buffett had dumped all his airline stock as soon as he heard that I wasn't able to travel anymore. So that sort of puts my, my travel into, into perspective. But look, as we approach the end uh, of this year, there's really, you know, given you're an L.A. guy, there's only really been one box office story that this year, and that's been... Uh, Sadly, it's been COVID uh, and it's been the great disruptor. You know, it's sort of wherever you look, it's upended the way we live and, and how we work. Um, how hard has it been for you at Wassermans and what are the things that you've had to adapt as you've gone along? And maybe a few of those things you'll take into hopefully uh, the normalcy of a post-pandemic world. For sure. Um, so the work... 
What's interesting for me, a couple of the positives I will say for sure, and then I'll touch on a couple of the challenges and the negatives. So to me, the positives are, are a couple fold. One, um, the thing about video environments like we're on or I can do with 30 employees um, is it creates a sense of equality because uh, as I like to say, you're all in the same size box and the sort of the, the sort of um, unintended bias that happens from a physical office space is lost on a, on a video call that really creates connectivity and openness in other way you probably can't. And for me, my ability to get connected to a broader cross-section of the company um, is really powerful. I can join a, an M&A call. I can join a, a finance call with 20 employees who I might never see literally in a whole year, but now I can join their call for half an hour, don't even have to talk, can just watch and listen and get exposure. And that's really valuable. I think the, the challenges to me are a few. One, I'm not sure people have fully understood whether keeping the wheels on the bus is being confused with making progress. Uh, maintaining feels like progress, but I'm not sure we're as, as, as companies we're progressing as much as we think we are just because we're keeping things together and we're stable. And that's a, that's a challenge because, you know, we're, we all need to keep progressing forward. Um, the second thing is, if you have a good culture, you can do this for a while, for sure. If you didn't have a good culture, I imagine it would be a really complicated time to manage a, a company and a business. But you can't do this forever. Uh, this is not the no offices for anybody is not the new normal because, frankly, you couldn't create a business with a culture. You couldn't create a company. You couldn't create a, a, a philanthropy. Anything with a positive culture without certainly being not allowed. certainly not in the creative world. Anyway. No, not without being physically present. And so that's. And the other thing that you miss is, and, and you know, walking around, whether, I mean, when I was at your office in, 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 uh, in, in London, for London 2012, like the serendipity conversations that happen by walking around are completely lost. And I, and I find, frankly, when I'm in the office, that's actually, other than, you know, having meetings and doing things like that, is the, is the singular most valuable thing. And I, and I do miss that. And for nine months or 12 months or however long we will be in this environment, for sure, you can make it through that. But I, you, I don't know that a company that needs to be thoughtful and engaged and progressive and, and take advantage of that culture that you have worked so hard to build can, can really thrive without having the opportunity to be in person, have those serendipity, brainstorm, whatever it is. And so, you know, we have done OK managing. Our business is very stable. Uh, thankfully, uh, as you know, the ecosystem of sports, as long as sports on TV, enough of the money flows through the system to keep things moving, uh, unlike other parts of the, of the sort of cultural landscape like entertainment or music, which are frankly, it's binary. Uh, sports, you can have 50, 60, 70% of the revenue flowing as long as you can get the events on television, which is really unique. And look, no fans is not a great, but it's better than not being on TV at all. Um, and so, you know, we've adjusted uh, once we got our sea legs and realized that, you know, okay, we're going to be able to make payroll and we're not going to have to lay off anybody and we can manage through this. Then, then we got into operating the business and, and uh, we have done okay. And to me, the biggest change will be on a, on a go forward basis, a couple of things. I think the, the pressure to be in the office to show that you're present and valuable will probably be diminished. I think the days of flying to New York for an hour meeting are probably over. Um, I think the days then, and just go to London, you know, I mean, to, to leave, uh, to leave, you know, my hotel in Knightsbridge and, and drive up to the wharf for a meeting that 45 minutes each way, like now you could do a Zoom, just like in LA, to drive downtown LA for 45 minutes for an hour meeting is, is crazy on a whole host of levels that I never would have considered before. And having said that, 
Um, I think the things that bring people together at scale are more important. Um, conferences, events, things that are valuable, where if you're not going to go to New York for a day and see a couple people, then coming to, uh, you know, your Congress for the IAAF is more important because you're going to, and you'll probably spend more time and be more present at a thing like that where everyone's in one place. And so there's going to be a new normal, but what we are to, what we are in now is not the new normal. And as you know better than I do, the pendulum always swings too far in both directions and usually ends up in the middle. I'm really pleased to hear you say that the new norm is not going to be, you know, officeless structures because I think there is a, there's a balance. There has to be clearly proportionality. I mean, you know, at World Athletics, I've, I've said, it's really simple. You know, the days of having eight people flying eight time zones to deliver an update or a project review that, frankly, could be done with a drone above the stadium and, you know, the sorts of technology that bring you and I together today is... You know, if you've got a sustainability strategy, guys, you better start living to it. And I think it's been a good discipline for us. But I agree with you entirely. I just don't think you can take you, you just can't, you know, create a sort of laboratory environment where you hope that same kind of creativity, because it is the serendipitous conversation standing you know, next to the coffee machine that that, that lead to, you know, the big whales suddenly being you know, pulled into the business. Um, I, I, I want to move on to something else which uh, has interested me in all this because, you know, you're a, uh, a political graduate. You uh, graduated in, in political sciences from your local university, UCLA. Uh, and if, you know, COVID has been one of the big box office stories, of course, uh, in your country, an election year is always a big uh, box office story. Uh, and frankly, this one's probably been... Uh, significantly different from than anything that I've experienced. Maybe, maybe you think differently. You do come from a political family. Uh, you've always taken a strongly globalist view uh, of the world and you successfully won, uh, and I can say this with feeling, you successfully won probably the, the toughest global pitch that anybody goes into when you're up against other great cities to, to stage an Olympic Games. I guess, given that background, you will have watched events unfold over the last four years, particularly about the U.S.'s place in that global landscape that have have been at least a difficulty for you in some of the other things that you believe in and have tried to create through your business world and, and certainly through Los Angeles as a host city. You know, I, I have this vivid memory of... I choose my words carefully there. Yes, yes, <laughs> as will I. Um, but I, I, I can remember, obviously, uh, we were in the middle of the bid process. Um, uh, I happened to be uh, in uh, Mexico uh, in November of 2016 for a PGA Tour event that we manage um, uh, in Mayakoba. And uh, I will never forget it. I, I went to sleep. Um, in this just incredibly depressed state, given what had happened and given my belief that Hillary Clinton was, you know, going to win and was the right choice and a woman as president was going to be a really powerful, exciting thing in my relationship with that family. And I'll never forget, Seb, I woke up in the morning and it was pouring rain. And I, it was Mexico, so I was prepared for it to be raining and warm. So I had a windbreaker that I had gotten in Rio over the summer, a Team USA windbreaker. And I remember, like it was yesterday, putting it on in Mexico, given the tone of, of the way Trump had talked about that country. 
and actually a little ashamed to put it on a Team USA jacket with an American flag on the back. And I've never been had that feeling at any time in my life. I've always been really proud of this country and to be an American with all our flaws and all our ups and downs as a society. And then, and then, as you will appreciate, maybe more uniquely than any human on earth, you know, here we are bidding for an Olympics, telling the world to come to Los Angeles and to come to our country and that we're open and thrilled and excited. And you have a president elect at that time uh, who was saying things that were quite the opposite. And it was a real... Oh, it, uh, it, if it's of any comfort, I think those of us who were watching that closely realize that what we were looking at was an aberration and that, you know, the U.S. has always stood for, you know, on, on, on most occasions, an innovative, creative and actually globalist, you know, globalist nope, nation. So, so, you know, but the good guys I won do, through. I, I remember it. And uh, I also had to have that perspective that I, and I said this to my kids, you know, there's as, as distraught as they were. And they were, again, you know, back then they were 14 and 12 um, and they were really shaken by it. I said, you need to have some perspective, which is we all need to have, which is that, you know, eight years before that, uh, an African-American man named Barack Obama got elected president of the United States. And there was probably half the country who felt like you do today when he got elected. And it's a it's a world that is full of diverse perspectives. And, and our job is to manage through it as best as we can. And obviously, um, I think President Biden or President-elect Biden will, will do a great job. Uh, I don't think you can isolate yourself in this environment, in this world. The world is so interdependent. And we all need to rely on each other to make this world a better place. And by the way, if there was ever a better moment to understand that truly and deeply, it's, it's the COVID situation we're in, which is, you know, um, we're all connected. Literally now we see it, uh, we feel it, and we feel the effects of what being isolated and and uh, uh, and disconnected to to people we need to rely on for success has has done and it's um, uh, I think it's been a real wake up call for a lot of people and I will tell you as as destructive and depressing and heartbreaking to see the effects of COVID around the world it probably created an environment to produce the election result we just had. Let me let me move on to LA twenty eight because. I was actually in the room that day uh, when you guys made the pitch, the presentation, a powerful presentation it was, and it struck me that you'd sort of broken it down into two key focuses. One was, you know, if you're an international federation and you're trying to grow your sport, then which marketplace in the world, you know, do you need to be, should you be? Uh, and by the way, you're in sort of the startup capital of the world as well. Uh, and a lot of those startups have become almost your global partners and are now household names. The second was something you touched upon a few moments ago, and that was the delivery of a, a sustainable, uh, eco-friendly games. I'm hoping I'm picking those two points right. And if I am, tell me a little bit about both of them. For sure. And before we get to that, you know, um, I want everybody to know uh, you know this because you know how I feel about you personally, but I would not have taken the role as chairman uh, of the bid. Uh, now, I may curse you with certain days of the, of the week when I have to deal with certain things, but there is a no, no chance I would have taken this job if it wasn't for the time we spent at your office in London. I remember that conversation like it was yesterday, and I just want to tell you how much it means to me that the advice you gave me and the constant presence you've been for me as a friend and a mentor through this process, because frankly, 
I remember what you said to me is, you know, I'm going to call you whether you like it or not, because there's not a lot of us who have done this and I'm going to be there and someone did it for me and I'm going to do it for you and you're going to do it for the next person. And uh, Well, you know who the person that did that for me was? Peter? Peter Uberoth. Peter. Peter rang me after we just got across the line in London, absolutely unannounced. He came through on a Saturday, Sunday afternoon and he said, because uh, I knew him from L.A. and, you know, obviously right. L.A. were my games. And he said, look, there aren't that many of us around that have done this job. It's a lonely, it can be Arctic lonely sometimes. And I'm going to ring you every few Sundays and you're going to tell me you don't need my advice and I'm going to tell you that's fine. And, but, and it was fantastic. And I've always believed that it's a, <laughs> it's a life-shortening experience. And yes. you, you, well, you, wait, you wait until uh, you get into the delivery phase. <laughs> uh, well, I just want everyone to know that... Uh, that's kind, that's kind I, of you. I really appreciate it. I couldn't or wouldn't have done this without you, and it, it really does mean the world to me. So um, the way I describe, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with the, the, the commercial yeah. aspects of the United States second, but let, let me, the way I describe what our delivery program and the sustainability is, you know, a lot of Olympic bid cities and then ultimately host cities say like, most of our venues are built and then they, as you know, then there's this comma and a but. We have to build these few venues, which of course are the three most expensive things you have to build, whether it's an IBC or a village or a stadium. And, uh, and ours doesn't have that but because of, of Los Angeles. And it's not that we have the Coliseum or the new NFL Stadium, the SoFi Stadium or Staples Center. Our, our, our secret sauce in Los Angeles, ironically, is USC and UCLA because no city on earth has two universities at that scale, with that level of athletic programs uh, that are in the city center 10 miles from each other. It literally doesn't exist on earth, and that's our secret sauce. And the way I describe it is, you know, we don't own the copyright on good ideas for hosting Olympic Games, but I do think we own the copyright on being able to execute them. And, and the way I paint the picture is, in Paris today, they woke up, there's a group of people thinking of really innovative, sustainability, environmental, technology, all the things that you would want to do if you were going to host an Olympic Games. They're all great ideas. We're all thinking about some version of the same. And then there's another part of that office, and you know this well, because yours was a different kind of project, but you know, that, that looked, looked around and said, wow, we haven't broke ground on our Olympic Village, and, and we have to host 17,500 uh, residents in less than four years from today, and we haven't broke ground yet. And so all those good ideas, all those innovative ideas, things around sustainability, technology, innovation, delivery ideas, they go out the window because it's all hands on deck to make sure that you have an Olympic village that's ready to open. And in LA, if, if we were in that office, uh, I would tell you, we have a group of people thinking about a lot of those same ideas. And then the fortunate thing for us is we turn around and look outside our window and we look at UCLA and UCLA houses 20,000 students today in dorms that are nicer than anything you could build. And that means we get to turn back Dor around our chairs. Dorms are nicer than I was in in 1984 at UCLA. <laughs> totally. 100% new dorms, by the way. And, and we get to turn around and focus on those ideas. And so sustainability, uh, innovation in terms of delivery, how you even manage Olympic Games. I mean, we ironically had a, a call this morning with, uh, with uh, the IOC and, and the chair of our, our COCOM. And, you know, this whole delivery program of, well, we're in the United States, so... Why shouldn't we just partner with the NBA and have them run the basketball tournament? And why shouldn't we partner with, you know, uh, uh, Ironman and let them run the triathlon? You know, professional sports organizations who do this for a living as opposed to us trying to recreate the wheel. And so from things like that to, 
you know, uh, uh, what it means to deliver sustainable games when you don't have to build facilities and you can focus on that. And then obviously the technological innovation that is, is, is evolving. And so, you know, we're in that fine line between how much do we do early because we have the time and how much do we wait till the end because things are going to change so much. Uh, but we are keenly focused on, uh, on, on doing something special. And the way I tell our staff every day is, if all we do is deliver the games well and financially responsibly, we will have missed our opportunity. We should be able to do that and a lot more. And that's the bar we're holding ourselves to. And then, you know, look, this, this is a powerful commercial market. And I know people get sensitive about the U.S. touting its commercial appeal, but we thought it was important. Uh, uh, I think so many, you know, it's, it's ironic because our university system is built on Olympic sports. Uh, it's a powerful platform to train American Olympians. And by the way, in Rio, we train 60 Olympians for other countries. It's a unique thing for a country to train athletes to compete against your athletes. Uh, and yet the professional manifestation of all those sports is, is underdeveloped. Um, I think about uh, like the IAAF, like, you know, I've been to, I've been to uh, uh, significant events around the world in, in your sport, and they're incredible experiences, obviously, just like they are in the Olympics. And we don't have one in the United States at that scale. And that's, that's not, I don't think that's not good. That's not good for your sport. And it's not good for our country. It's, an, we, it's a sport we actually do really well at. It's a sport that is exciting and fun. Well, and, well mercifully, of course, we are there in 2022 now in Oregon for the World exactly. Championships. And bookended exactly. at the end of the year, we, at the end of the decade with, with 28. So I, I know exactly. exactly what you're saying, because for us, this is a market that's essential for our growth. No, no question. And so we, we thought it was important to make federations think about that without being sort of the... Uh, yeah overly commercial, obnoxious Americans that sometimes we can be or get accused of being. For those that are listening to this that uh, are possibly unaware, uh, there was a, it was a odd model that uh, you guys went through because, of course, on the same day, the IOC effectively awarded two uh, host cities, Paris 24 and, and uh, you guys 28, uh, which was unusual to, to say the least, two great cities, probably a, a, from most people's perspective, a sensible decision. You wouldn't want to lose either of those uh, from the Olympic landscape. But that has posed, I guess you would consider that's posed you some, uh, some different types of challenges, given that you had 11 years uh, before the Games when you were awarded them. You're now, you know, just over eight years. That's probably the longest gestation period any organising committee has had to, to confront this this has posed you some challenges, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's obviously, you know, uh, it, it's really, it is for a couple of reasons. And then you would layer on the context of the, the kind of the political world we're in today. Uh, yeah. And that, you know, the, that, you know, you better be careful if you pick your head up too soon because it might get cut off. Uh, uh, and so both making sure we take advantage of that time, because as, as you know better than I do, the one thing you can't buy more of is time. And the one thing I guarantee our people is that, in the spring of 2028, I'm sure we will be sitting around some table somewhere in the office saying, I wish we had a couple more months, even though we will have had 11 years, which no one's ever had before. Uh, and so there's that. And then the flip side is uh, because of the infrastructure we have in Los Angeles to deliver the games, unlike most games where must, much of the risk sits on the cost side, our risk sits on the ability to drive the revenue. And so what we have been really focused on is, is being an organization that's paying attention to a few things, making sure the foundation is solid for us to go from 80 employees to ultimately 
thousands with, with tens of thousands of volunteers, uh, making sure we are aggressive in our commercial program. The only advice I can suggest is a really good HR function. <laughs> Yes, believe me, we are uh, ahead of the curve on that. We're trying to be ahead of the curve on that one. Um, uh, obviously, uh, getting aggressive against the commercial program in this context has both made it more interesting and more complex. And then, you know, making sure one of the things that Mayor Garcetti really pushed us to do was this youth sports uh, investment we're making, which is $160 million from our operating budget to subsidize the participation of youth sports in the city of Los Angeles for 10 years. And it is the largest single investment in youth sports participation in the history of this country in any one city. And, uh, and obviously, COVID has derailed the implementation of that. It's, it's ready to be implemented, obviously, but those facilities aren't able to be used around the city. Uh, and, and, and frankly, learning how, as I'm, sure, as I'm sure you look back and think about some of the best things you did was what you said no to, is saying no to a lot of things um, and really just trying to keep our head down and keep focused. Uh, we made... We were more public this year than we were the year before. And then obviously we're heading into this period where you're going to have two Olympic Games in six months, essentially. And it's it's a really interesting uh, sort of next year and a half for the Olympic movement. And, and it's really our beginning of our real process, our normal four plus three cycle or three plus four cycle that you live through. Um, and as I remind people, you know. I'll I use uh, I'll use football terminology. You know, we're uh, we're ready to be substituted in. I mean, we're next up, and uh, it's hard to imagine that. I was talking to our dear friend Janet Evans, and we were reminiscing about Rayford Johnson, who unfortunately passed away. Mm. And uh, I, I I will tell you a funny aside about Rayford, which is every time he was a dear man, an incredible human being, and every time uh, I saw him post us awarding the games, he said, "Casey, he put his arm around me. You just have to make me one promise." I said, "Whatever you want, sir." He said, don't make the person who lights the torch climb as many stairs as I had to climb. <laughs> <laughs> it, was. It, was, it was the most terrifying thing I ever did was climb those hundred stairs. Um, if, we'd had, if we'd had spread betting at the time, there would have been a quite a good spread on whether actually Rafe was going to make those last 10 steps. No question. And he was in great shape too. No question. And, but Janet was talking about, hey, Casey, can you believe that in, in Paris, you're going to take the flag from the French? And it's like... It kind of struck me like that's th kind of three years from now, and then we're we're up. It's our turn, and that for as long as the eleven years has felt, it will be here tomorrow, which you know better than I do. It will. The only advice I would give you is, however you know, however hard it is, try and enjoy it because yeah. it is the experience of a lifetime. It's life shortening, and there are days where you just you know you just wish they they weren't taking place, but. It's it is an extraordinary experience. Uh, let me let me in a way just sort of backtrack into another commonality we have, because, of course, there's the Olympic connection. But you and I are both intimately involved with two rival sports agencies, uh, CSM and Wasserman. Um, this is probably not the right for the right moment to announce an amalgamation. That's a joke, by the way. <laughs> but. Um, you do have a, a number of proverbial fingers in a number of proverbial pies. What, what does actually, I, I'm always interested in this, what does Wasserman and the agency mean to you? Because there's a lot of shared purpose and value there, isn't there? There is. Um, you know, I look back when I started it and I was always, we always talked about it, sort of having this family atmosphere. Um, and for me... It's obviously easy to say, lots of companies say it, and, and to see it manifest itself today, which is 
frankly, a company that's, yes, it has my name on it, and I wish I could come up with a different name, but it, it has my name on it. But it's a company that's about the thousand employees who work there, who frankly um, understand that it's about the shared opportunity and success. And that's what being a family is about. It's not that we, people don't have egos and people don't deserve credit at the moments they deserve them because they do. But it's about through good and bad. It's about how well do you uh, keep this group of people moving together in the same direction. That doesn't mean they all agree, nor should they. It doesn't mean they have the same perspective or the same interest, but it means that they they see the direction that we're all trying to go and they're all committed to going there. And to see that during these times of COVID, the amount of time and effort people have put into keeping this company moving forward uh, through you know, I mean, I thought I said I thought I said this in two thousand eight nine, but I'm I'm going to say it again: the most difficult, complicated thing we've ever been through. Um, and I hope I don't get in the habit of saying it every ten years. Uh, has really been, uh, frankly, in many ways, emotional uh, for me. And I have I have told them that I have never been more proud of a group of people for what they have done. And they're not doing it because I'm telling them to do it. Because frankly you know well better than I do. If you tell someone to do it, it doesn't mean they're going to do it. If they don't want to do it, they do. And if they're passionate about doing it, they're going to do it without being asked. And to see that... Or they'll, they'll do it somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Uh, it's been really heartwarming, emotional, powerful for me and, and gives me great uh, joy to see, to see the business work through a, uh, an environment like the last nine months. And, uh, and I think, you know, look... Uh, a good company survive times like this. Great companies thrive during times like this. And, and our goal is to really thrive through a time like this. Uh, as you know, um, have the greatest amount of respect for CSM. I, I'm a big believer that the world of sports is big and the more success we all have, the better it is for all of us. And I'm not one of those people who believe it's a zero-sum game and it's not. Uh, and so, you know, I, I love the people I get to go to work with every day. I'm incredibly proud of the work they do. And just like you, we're in the service business. So it's uh, we're only as good as the work we do for our clients. And that depends on really good people being committed to doing that. And, uh, and you really see that in times like this. And you clearly feel that agencies like yours can really leave an indelible legacy in the, in the sporting, the entertainment landscape. I do. You know, we, we, we serve, both of us serve a, a unique role in, in the world where we are, are operating a world that is nuanced and unique and different than the normal places a lot of these companies we work with or clients we work for operate in. And the value we provide and the perspective we provide them and the insights we deliver them, um, I think really can can help them make their businesses and their opportunities better. And, uh, you know, it, it, once, you, once you understand that it's about their success, you know, uh, I think you can really create a powerful result and, and you see that. As I am certain at CSM today that the business is stable, the client, yes, we all may be working harder for the same or a little bit less money today, but the clients are relying on us more. And that means that the people you have doing the work you have doing it are valued and appreciated. Uh, and, and that really is what's rewarding about this. And uh, and I do believe that that uh, uh, we create a lot of value for our clients. And, and I believe CSM does too. That's why... It's had staying power and success over a long period of time in, in a world that's quite competitive. Well, we'll take all that offline. <laughs> <laughs> let me, um, let me, as they say, pull the knitting together here and, and, and just focus 
for a few moments on on the last theme I wanted to really tease out with you. Uh, you wrote in pretty clear terms uh, to the International Olympic Committee uh, about some of the changes that you th- thought, or certainly a review, uh, and maybe changes that you saw around Rule 50, which is effectively um, that rule that... Uh, you know, refers to athlete demonstration uh, and gesture uh, and particularly about anti-racist uh, advocacy. Uh, and you, I'm quoting you now, being anti-racist is not a political gesture. Uh, I think few people would, would disagree with that. What is the role that you see sport playing in, in that shifting um, uh, political landscape and, and particularly the role that it can play in shifting the 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 political, social, uh, and cultural diet around social movement? Um, look, I, I, you know, I, you know, not to uh, go back and uh, uh, think about, you know, a, a commercial, but, you know, in the end, athletes are role models. People do look up to athletes. They do have a great amount of respect for their perspectives. And I think athletes, given the world we live in, understand the power of their voices. And they are meaningful and they are influential. And they do, in many ways, define the culture we all live in or, or, or think about living in. And, and you saw it and you have seen it in every sport around the world, whether it's uh, the Premier League, Formula One racing, the NBA, the NFL. I mean, just let's talk about the NFL for a minute. It's a, it's a league that over the last three or four years has been accused of, and whether they did or didn't is almost irrelevant, blackballing Colin Kaepernick for taking a knee uh, who was, he was the only one uh, taking a knee during the national anthem to protest police brutality, which was essentially racist behavior. And now the NFL on the back of his helmets is allowing anti-racist statements to be printed on the helmets of the NFL players. And there are players who take a knee and there are players who don't. And there was no more controversy about it. And, and the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, has come out and said, we handled that wrong. We weren't as aware of of what's going on in our communities in this country as we should have been, and we weren't as in touch with it, and we were wrong. And that's powerful. And this isn't about a commercial and a, and a, and a, and this is about systemic issues that have existed in societies. This is not an American problem. This is a global issue. I mean, uh, you know, a Champions League game yesterday was paused because of, of racist comments from someone on the field. I mean, it's, it happens every day. And, the power of athletes, the power of sport to shift that perspective, to, to shift the dialogue and to move us forward in a way that we absolutely must. I think it's, it's incredible and it's, it, it's really wonderful to see athletes and organizations around the world understand their role. You can't just say, oh, well, we, we're the National Football League, so we're just about what happens on the field. You know, their, their place in society is much greater than that. And they are now understanding that the NBA and, and leagues all over the world and players and teams are embracing that. And, and as I said, being anti-racist is not political. Uh, it is not. It will never be. And shame on all of us if we don't hold ourselves to that standard. When the 2028 games are successfully done and dusted, do you have political ambitions? Uh, I do. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I really take my responsibility with the game incredibly seriously. I believe uh, I have a great desire to give back in many ways. Um, I'm fortunate that I would have the means to not have a job if I wanted to do that. And, 
And so I, I view that uh, post-2028, you know, whether it's running for office or, or giving back in some way um, to society politically beyond just running a business or, or helping pull together the Olympic Games is something I have a real desire to do. Uh, I'm keenly focused on the time between now and 2028. But so I you should be. <laughs> I, I uh, can see myself beyond 2028 definitely uh, in that direction. And it would be the, frankly, for, for myself and obviously my kids, I'd want them to be adults and, and, and outside of that spotlight that, that you would have if you were to do it now. I, I, I'm going to have to push you further here. Is that mayoral? Is it governor? Um. I would say it's Maybe. definitely one of the one of the two. If I were to, if I were leaning today, it'd probably be governor because I think the the state of California is a really powerful economic and political and societal influence in the world, given the size of its economy and the the, the caliber of of its resources and the quantity of its people, and you know the opportunity to to make a positive impact at that scale. Um, really energizes me and gets me excited. And whether I could ever be successful at getting elected or anything like that um, is something I would definitely uh, uh, intend to uh, make a part of my future. Well, if it's helpful, I can dust down my campaigning skills uh, and, and join your team. Uh, will, I'd love to. <laughs> I, I, will, uh, I will move you right from your seat next to me at closing ceremonies <laughs> to your campaign office seat. <laughs> Listen, Casey, it's been a joy speaking to you. Thank you for being really candid and open. Uh, and I've, I've enjoyed this immensely. I hope you have. Uh, and I hope uh, we're, I, we're meeting up more than virtually. I loved every second of it as I do always with our time. I will, uh, I will finish with a funny story that I will never forget. And I will tell you that's the only thing you didn't warn me about. So you did tell me during your uh, rehearsal for the, uh, for the uh, evaluation commission visit that you had... One of your people on the on the test run faked a heart attack and you bent over to ask him if he was okay. And he, he leaned at you and said, I'm not having a heart attack, but where's the closest hospital? Where's the defibrillator? And your point to me was very clear. Be prepared for everything. And I would tell you, in all my moments of preparation, something like COVID was not in my planning system. So I think I need to revisit my entire preparation for 2028. But uh, you have been, uh, again, uh, a truly incredible friend, mentor, someone I have admired greatly from afar and up close. And uh, I, I will enjoy uh, July of 2028 and, and, and I will enjoy giving you a big hug that night because uh, you will have been a big part of the reason that I'm there. Well, that's very kind of you and it will be reciprocated. I look forward to seeing you soon. Casey, thank you so much. Thank it's you. Been a joy. Take care. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 